So good morning, any of you joining us online. I'm Pastor Joel. Welcome you if you're a visitor. I am truly honored to serve you on this Lord's Day. I want to invite you to turn to the end of 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 28. You'll find it printed in your bulletin. We're about to read a passage about the discovery of our true family. Jamie and I recently saw a movie with this theme based on a true story. The movie's called Lion. The true story is called A Long Way Home. It begins in North India, where we meet a five-year-old boy named Saru. Now, Saru has this older brother named Gadu, or Gadu, he looks up to, and he follows him everywhere, just like, you know, a younger brother would look up to his older brother. And one night, he follows his brother Gadu to a train station where his brother actually begs or finds work to do. And Saru falls asleep on a bench, gets separated from his brother. He wakes up, he's panicked. He sees a train that he thinks his brother might be on. He gets aboard that train. The train ends up taking him hundreds of miles from his home. He ends up in a city where he doesn't know the language. He's lost, he's alone. He finally ends up in an orphanage and have failed attempts to find his family an Australian couple ends up adopting him. So Saru ends up growing up in a whole nother world. He identifies himself as an Australian citizen for the next 25 years of his life. He chooses a career path that'll lead him to, you know, a well-to-do Western style type of living. He talks like an Aussie, hey mate. He behaves like an Aussie. And then one day he's invited over to have a meal with some friends of his who are Indians. And that meal does something to him. They begin to ask him about his past, which he doesn't really have a whole lot of recollection of. He ends up getting uncomfortable. He steps out into the kitchen, and there he sees a plate of jalebis. And this triggers a memory from his past. He remembers his older brother as he's looking at this jalebis. It's an Indian street food. He remembers his older brother saying, one day I'm gonna get you so many jalebis, more than you could ever ask for or imagine, more than you could ever eat. And remembering this, he takes one of these cookies and smells it. It triggers this memory and it shakes him to his core. Saru is so homesick at this point, he sets out on a journey the rest of the movie to find out his true identity. He wants to know how he got lost, how he forgot who he was. He ends up scouring Google Earth in search of his native home. It's actually the journey before the journey. And everything, the point is everything in Saru's life becomes oriented around trying to find his true family. And he's constantly reliving all the places and memories of his brother, of his family. And the movie ends with this tearful scene as he long at last re-enters his village of his birth. The whole town, it comes to life as they gather around this young man who's been gone for so long. And he's standing there in the street, just in hopes of being reunited with his family. And then he sees a figure walking his way. Welcome to our text. Friends, the Apostle John wants you to see a future face-to-face with family that will forever transform you. Are you ready for the gospel? Let's pray that God might graciously trigger in us something that will remind us of who we are and who we belong to. Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we want to thank you that in your wise providence, 
you ordain that we here in Elkhart, Indiana, on the other side of the world, will be reading this letter written 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. Thank you for thinking of us, Father. Thank you for bringing each and every one of us here from wherever we've been. We ask and pray that we might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, meet with Christ and discover a homecoming that is not yet and yet already is. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that's Christ, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence at his coming and not shrink from him in shame. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. James Boyce comments on this text. Sometimes believers have treated the doctrine of the return of Christ as if it were an escape valve from having to face the harsh realities of life. Some, unfortunately, have even rejoiced when conditions in the world have gotten worse. For, they say, it is a sign of the not-too-distant second coming. But this is wrong. And John, at least, will not stand for it. What happens when a Christian actually understands that Jesus is returning and that he must give an account to him? The answer is, he purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. Moreover, it is the one who understands these things that is most often down in the heart and heartbreak of the city working to bring the liberating power of the gospel to broken men and women and in the far reaches of the world in order to tell those who have not heard the gospel about the world's savior. I know that's a long quote. I've read it several times this week. And I read that as our world right now. I've not looked at the news today. I don't try to do that on Sundays. The world's bracing for right Israel's invasion of, of Gaza in response to that horrific Hamas attack. Social media feeds, if they're any indicator, <laughs> they're just full of talk right now about how God's timetable is connected to Israel. Seen them? There's a whole lot of fervor over Jesus' return in light of this and other events, right? Russia, Ukraine. Frankly, it's deja vu for me as a boy. I remember the number one selling book of the 1970s. It was on our shelf and a lot of other Christian shelves. Anybody know what book was the number one selling book in the 1970s? Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. We also had Ken Wisenhunt's 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, a book with also sold millions of copies. Oh, and by the way, for any of you who were not yet born, Jesus didn't return then. <laughs> Which is probably why Ken Wisenhunt's uh, book uh, in 1989, why he returned 1989, didn't actually sell very well. Anyways, I just remember as a boy, a lot of Christians were reading their Bibles through the world events. And our hope was escaping an evil earth before the Antichrist and Apocalypse came. 
So to be rapture ready, we stitch scriptures of Christ's coming to every evil event we saw. And by the way, that's really easy because there's actually 318 references to Christ's return in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. You can find something to make it fit. Here's the thing, though. Besides scaring some folks, we didn't do very much to impact our world. That's why the church has declined so much, at least one reason for it in our day. Friends, let's not make the same mistake. Yes, let's pray for Israel. We're praying for Israel. But let's not lose sight of our opportunity by getting distracted. The opportunity is right in front of us that we can do something about. Last week, we saw John would not be saying with alarm, look at what the world's coming to. No, John was saying, look at what has come into the world. Jesus, the Son of God. John is saying, let us live out of Jesus' first coming as we look forward to his second coming. John says, we prepare then during this time because purity has entered into the world by purifying ourselves as he is pure. And John, this whole time, he's been inviting us to get to know Jesus now, not just in the future when we get to see him face to face. He began this letter by inviting us to personal, intimate, real relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father. And it's only possible because Jesus came in our flesh and walked our world and understands us. And John, at this point, he's maybe 80, 90 years old. So he's looking back 50 or 60 years ago to when he looked up to Jesus. And he wants us now as little children to know Jesus, to know our big brother. And there's no greater joy, friends, than fellowship with Jesus Christ. John is like Saru. He's seeing Jesus as this amazing big brother who came and promised him the world. So we, in turn, should also be like that. And we should seek to be like our big brother. Live how he lived when he was on earth. We should study how he lived, what he loved, so that when we do see him, and we can't wait to see him that face-to-face one day, we will be able to hold forth all the things that we did to show him, to make him proud, because we wanted to be like him. That's actually where we left off last week. I read 28, but 28 is actually a transition verse. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink in shame at his coming. This verse is a transition because John is concluding his diagnostic tests of our relationship. In chapter 2, John has said again and again how we need to abide. Joel, what does it mean to abide? Abiding in Jesus, according to John, means obedience to his will, trust and obey. It means that we love other Christians. We look to love one another. And number three, we saw last week, it means we're to be shaped by God's truth. You know your relationship with Jesus is intimately connected to what you do with your Bible? Your love for God can be measured by your love for the Word. God gave us our Bibles. Why? This is a personal invitation to know Him, to know Him truly and really. He gave us, John told us last week, He gave us the teaching and He gave us the teacher, the anointing, the Holy Spirit. The Word and the Spirit's witness illumine our minds, it shapes our affections, Because, by the way, left to ourselves, our thoughts and our feelings will deceive us. That's why we have our wonderful October verse. It's at the bottom of your bulletin underneath the sermon text. I hope you're memorizing and meditating on this. Let's recite together. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. John's point, and the point here, is the difference between being confident when Christ returns or shrinking in shame at his coming, is whether you are abiding, whether you're discerning God's will and then obeying it while you live here on planet Earth. John is kind of saying, little children, Jesus departed Earth and he's coming back soon. Kind of like when you're back in elementary school and remember this and you're in class and the teacher says, I got to step out for a few minutes. I want you guys all to stay busy and do your work, be at your task while I'm gone. And you know what happens? You have some children who choose to obey, right? And they're staying in it. And then you have the others in the class who station someone at the door as a lookout. You know the class clowns never pick a good lookout because they're always interest, you know, interested in what they're doing. And suddenly, boom, the teacher's standing there and the whole class shrinks in shame. That's the picture John ends his diagnostics with. Now, lest we think our relationship is all about being at your task and rule keeping, John makes now a dramatic revelation. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is John's first mention of the new birth in his letter. And it comes at a crucial point because we've just had these tests. We might think the why of our relationship with God is based on our efforts, our righteousness. But notice the order. It's not everyone who is born of him practices righteousness. No, it's everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now let's get to the bad news before the good news here. John is saying, by your own efforts, it is impossible for you to be righteous. You have to be born again. We talked about Martin Luther last week. And this is what drove him crazy. Martin Luther read his Bible and he took it very seriously, every jot and tittle. And he saw he had no hope. I mean, God calls us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, 100% pure devotion of every part of your being. And he realized that none of us can meet God's righteous standard. You have no hope in doing this. You need a miracle to love God like he requires. Now, if you're starting to squirm, if you're thinking, huh, I think Joel's right, there's no way I can do that. If you're thinking that I need to be totally remade because I realize I'm just defective, then be encouraged. That's actually God opening your heart right now, opening your eyes to see. That's actually the new birth at work in you. And if you're disagreeing with me, if you think you can impress God by your own efforts, and I run to people all the time, I, I lived a good life, then you're not born again. You are spiritually dead. You're blind. And that's not Pastor Joel saying this. That's Jesus saying this. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Read this for your homework. Nicodemus is, Jesus says, you are the teacher of Israel. This is like the Pharisee of Pharisees. This is the holiest guy walking Israel. Jesus actually commends him. You are the teacher. He's blameless in the eyes of all his fellow Jews. And Jesus says, your efforts are doing nothing for you. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God in your flesh, Nicodemus. Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but only spirit gives birth to spirit. It blows like the wind. You must be born again of the spirit. And Nicodemus He's like, what in the world? I can't be born again on my He doesn't see. He doesn't get it. He's completely blind. He walks out trying to figure out the riddle, the new birth. 
wonderfully, he does come to Jesus later. Jesus means there must be an inner spiritual work, a regeneration of the heart, a new birth that can only come from God. That is the only way you can begin to do the righteousness, the kindness, the mercy of God. And it's not the result of the way you can turn from sin. What John, all these tests he's been giving us, that we're turning from sin, turning from temptation, turning from our addictions, that is actually, when you see you're doing that, that shows that the Spirit is at work in your life. Anytime you find you're being righteous, doing new obedience with actually a clear conscience, <laughs> when you find you're loving that difficult brother or sister that you just couldn't stand last week, when you find that you're actually loving God's word and you're actually believing it, and you're like, wow, that is not the result of you trying harder. Don't give yourself any credit for that, even though I know you're feeling the experience of the trying harder. It's actually proof of new life in you. That is Jesus Christ holding your hand and walking you through life as you are being reborn by the Spirit. Surprise! Your new behavior is a result of your new birth. That is the why of our relationship. Because God is righteous. That's where John started. Everyone who resembles righteous God has clearly been born of him. That means, friends, you have the Spirit. You are free to do righteousness and not sin. Full stop. I want you to hear that. For John began this, these tests in chapter 2, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Some Christians I meet all the time, they want to cop out. Well, this sin is just too hard for me to avoid, to stop doing this. I've been doing it for so long. That won't square with the Apostle John. You were born again to look like your righteous father. And God's spirit remains in the believer once he started the new birth to continue that work. If you say, I can't stop, basically you are saying, my sin is greater than Almighty God, the Holy Spirit. Anybody want to say that? To be born of God, who is spirit, means that you are now a partaker of the divine nature. Don't ask me to explain that. That's what Peter says. To be born into the family of God is not just adoption, as Paul talks about, but to actually have now in you the spiritual DNA of the Holy Creator who made everything. And that supernatural reality is why John now does something that I don't think you're going to see in the next verse, so I'm going to help you appropriate it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? And so we are! Anybody awake here now? I don't want you to miss the high point of this whole letter. John doesn't either. John is using loud language and extra language because John is really excited. He's just going crazy with his pen. John is what we would call exulting. There's exceeding joy over what God has done. In fact, John is showing us that knowing God means great joy, means exultation. John is doing relationship with Jesus Christ as he writes this verse. John is saying that this is a reality that cannot always be contained. Sometimes it just needs to overflow out of your being. Kind of like those, you know, volcano experiments we used to do. We pour the stuff in, pour the verses in and the faith and sometimes it just should come out and explode. John is explaining God's love because God's love is a truth that goes beyond the rational. John gets kind of Pentecostal here. He's going crazy. Okay, trying to explain what cannot be explained. And I have to apologize for the ESV here. I don't often do that, 
but I think here it stands for emotionless scripture version, okay? <laughs> this verse must have been one of them translated by Presbyterians because we struggle with emotions, all right? I prefer how the King James starts off. Behold, this is about beholding. The NIV actually puts two exclamation points in this verse. There's none in the ESV. I also like the NIV, which says, look what great love the Father has lavished on us. That means God has bestowed it. It is a gift, as a special gift of his love to you, this great love. Great love that's not like this world's love. We talked about this in Sunday school. Our love on earth is selfish. We're always motivated by self. God's love is not selfish. It's all giving. God's love is immutable. It never changes. God's love is faithful. Anybody here know perfectly faithful love in this life from family or relationships? <laughs> God's love pre-exists. God's love is so, so, so great. You see, it's beyond us, and that's why John literally lights literally writes, from what country? From where in the world does this come from? What manner of love? This is actually the same word the disciples used. After Jesus, you know, is standing there in the boat, you know, the storm is raging, the sea is going crazy, and Jesus says, be still, and hushes it like a puppy. <laughs> and they say, what manner of man is this? It's out of this world. That is the kind of love that the Father has given us. Friends, John's point is, this love ought to surprise you. Are you surprised that God set his love on you? This is actually an indication of whether or not you truly know God. Because you and I, by nature, are not beloved children. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath. If you were to ask John, if John would walk in here, and I walked up and said, are you a Christian? You know what he would not say? Oh, yes, of course I'm a Christian. <laughs> if he, I said to Apostle John, if he came walking through here, are you a Christian? He'd say, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me to him who death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That would be John's response to whether or not he was a Christian. And John adds after this, it's an adoptive love because it's so great that the Father now calls you. He calls you his children. And John adds those unneeded words to stress it. And so we are. Just He's trying to get the point across. We are full members of a new forever family because God called us to be his own. He called us, which means... You can never, 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 never be disowned. Never. We're simply waiting for the day when the Father comes to take us home. Some of us don't appreciate that. Um, I've actually learned a lot about appreciating my own adoption because we've had foster children. And one story that I heard from a girl in one of our trainings still brings tears to my eyes. There was this young girl who spoke about the day when she was adopted by her foster mother. It was a day she was anticipating, she was looking forward to, but she had no idea how much it would mean. Foster mom had gone to court while the girl was in school. And after the adoption was official, the judge says she's yours. Mom headed straight to the school, walked right into this little girl's PE class. And the girl said, I was shocked to see my mom walk into the gym. 
And mom walked over and she said, you're mine. And the little girl said she didn't understand. So mom repeated, you're mine, because that's all she could get out. And the little girl said she still didn't get it until her mom said for the third time, you're mine. And at that moment, the moment she realized she was adopted, she says, I started jumping up and down and screaming, and I didn't care what anybody in my class thought about me, because I was adopted. I belonged to my mom. The only thing that mattered to her at that moment, she belonged to her mom. Let me ask you, do you live like that? Rejoicing and not caring what the world thinks about you because you've been adopted by the Father? J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. That's why John actually says the very next thing. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So let me ask you, have you gotten upset recently at someone over at work, maybe who's been disrespecting you? Or maybe you're stewing over a family member, you know, who's constantly critical of you. You're not looking forward to the holidays. You have things that just stew and eat at you that other people do to you. Do you want to know why you're so upset and you can't let that go? Because you have not taken in the wonder of the Heavenly Father's love for you. Your identity as his child. To the degree that you take in that you know God, have a relationship, and are accepted by God, you will walk through this world unfazed by everything else that comes at you. You see, the creator of the cosmos is smiling on you, Christian. Our Heavenly Father is proud of us. If we truly took that into the core of our being, all the way down from the top of our head to the bottom of our toes, do you realize what amazing force we would be in this world and how we would not be rocked by a world that doesn't appreciate us? We wouldn't be constantly trying to replace God's love with people love, right? We wouldn't need people's approval or even expect it because they don't know God. They don't know his ways. That's John's point here. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. John is an old man, and he still has not gotten over the fact that we're God's children. It's an already reality, but now he's pointing us to the future that full recognition of your true future self. It's kind of like that movie where Saru discovers his true identity is not an Aussie. And at that moment, he reorients his whole life towards one goal, one goal, the face-to-face -face with his true family. The end of the journey for the Christian is actually far better than the ending of that movie, which I haven't spoiled for anyone. Because... We don't have to do all the hunting, all the searching in hopes of finding. Jesus is coming to us. And second, at the coming of Jesus, we're going to discover the completion of God's greatest masterpiece, the human project. The Christian is going to be made glorious beyond our wildest dreams. We began our worship service with Psalm 8, where Davis asks, 
What is man that you're mindful of us? Friends, the Bible teaches us that you and I, every human you meet is the pinnacle of all creation. Every one of us, every person we're going to meet out here, heartbroken people, they are still made in God's image. And now, yes, that image has been deformed, damaged, because our first parents rebelled, and they knew it. You know, they were hit with the shame of their nakedness before God's voice came to them and the guilt of sin set in. You see, their glory was stripped away, as was their future, future greater glory, which they were to attain by obedience. That is why the Father in love sent his Son to take on our image. It's an amazing thing. God made us in his image, and then he took on the image of the image. And the reason Jesus did this, the reason he went to the cross, was that there would be no human, that there would actually finally be on earth a human without sin, without shame. And by despising our shame and taking our sin to the cross to defeat it, Jesus conquered sin, death, and the devil, and has been raised up in resurrection glory, the supernaturalized self that our first parents failed to achieve. You realize at the end of human history, when Jesus comes, that second coming, God's plan initiated in Genesis 1 will finally be fulfilled. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Friends, on that last day, you and I are going to be fully conformed to Christ. Fully and forever conformed to Christ. And when Jesus comes, it's going to be great. You and I are going to discover our supernaturalized selves. Some of us are going to be pretty excited. We're going to get new suits, right? It's going to be great. But even more, we will be freed from sin and from shame forever. These things that constantly weigh us down, gone. We need to be ready and preparing for the future face-to-face that will forever transform each and every one of us. That's the hope of so many faithful Christians who I meet who are disappointed at how life turned out. They made wrong decisions. They failed to accomplish the things they hoped for, or maybe they're simply old, which means they think they no longer have a future. (laughs) No, this is the answer. If you think that, it's actually a failure to take in the abundant, endless life that lies in front of us. Now, you may be saying, Joel, this is a good message, inspiring everything else, but how does that help me today? How does that help me today, Pastor Joel? Well, wonderfully, Pastor John's actually the guy in the pulpit right now because he anticipated you would ask that question. And look at verse 3, the final verse. All who have this hope purify themselves as he is pure. Hope in him equals progressive purity going forward. Do you struggle with sin? All heads nod yes here, please. Do you struggle with sin? Do you struggle with shame? Then purify yourselves by hoping in the glory of our coming Lord Jesus. Joel, how does my hope in his coming purify me? Well, it makes perfect sense if you remember what it's like to first fall in love. That high school crush. Ladies, remember that first high school crush? Remember being head over heels for Pimply Face Parker, right? And then he asks you out. He says, I'll pick you up at 7. What are you doing at 645? You're in front of the mirror, making sure everything looks perfect, right? Yeah? And then you're waiting by the window for him to come and hope at 6.55, and then what happens? You think, is my hair, is my face, is my dress perfect? <laughs> so you run off the mirror, and you make some quick adjustments, right? Then you're back there waiting at 6.58, and you think, oh, thought comes, 
I may have not done this right. And you run back to the mirror, right? What is that all about? As you wait and hope for pimply faced Parker, you are purifying yourself as the hour draws near. How much more will our hope in seeing our beloved Jesus Christ face to face lead us to daily, hour by hour, as we meditate on his coming, and it's a minute closer every minute I've been preaching. How much will that help us clean up our acts while we're here? And by the way, this helps me sometimes. Some of us need to realize that Jesus, when he comes, is going to be more happy to see you than you are to see him. We need to focus on that future face-to-face because that's a huge help to our holiness in a world that needs to see it. So friends, is Jesus your hope in this world? Then let's show it. Let's show it to our neighbors. Stott says, unrighteous conduct is unthinkable in the Christian who has grasped the purposes of the two appearances of Christ. The fact of his first appearing and the hope of his second are both strong incentives to holiness. So here's your take home. Abide in him. Abide in him. Abide in him. And begin for the first time if you're not yet Christian and you feel that tug on your heart. Abide in him. Devote your life to Jesus. Spend time in your Bible with Jesus. And trust him in whatever he tells you to do that you read in this. And love Jesus' people. Jesus wants you to love his people. And number two, spend time beholding. Beholding. Meditating on your future glory when Jesus comes. Think about it. How can you be a sour Christian? How can you possibly be a sour Christian? Why? Because we make way, 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 way too much of this world and its fleeting pleasures. Instead of marveling at the infinite glory offered to us that is one day near each and every day. Peter wrote, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm going to pray, but first we're going to sing a song by Franny Crosby called Blessed Assurance. I've had a few folks over the years say, we sing way too many old and unfamiliar songs. Somebody's actually saying, no, 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 don't. Actually, that may be true. And I'm not against modern songs. In fact, we've sung a couple of them earlier. But I think not too many songwriters today write very inspiring lyrics. Because I think most of us are far, far too busy today with all the things we're doing. We don't know how to stop to abide and we don't know how to stop to behold. Not Franny. She was born in a slower generation. And she was really good at abiding. Do you know she was blind? And she memorized the first five books of the Bible so that she could abide with Jesus. And this blind author. I want you to read these words and take them home and read them again and again, especially verse stances one and three this week. Take in how she beholds. And let's join her in praising Jesus for coming. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, what manner of love is this? That we should be called your children and such we are. We just want to thank you for setting your love on us, for saving us out of our sin and misery, and also for giving us an opportunity even now in this brief little moment we have on earth to be part of the greatest rescue mission in all of human history, the salvation of human souls who you want to remake in your image. 
We thank you for bringing us here and ask and pray as we leave here that we will feel your Holy Spirit leading and guiding us to do mattering things, all through the praise of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.